Identifying vulnerability and ambiguity. Um, in the U.S., the great, the, both the civilian and military world just loves models, mathematical models. But the problem is that they're not capturing the nuance. And because they're not capturing nuance, if you only have good data going in, then you're understanding what's happening. If you don't, if you have limited data or siloed data, then there's big problems. So I've seen that as a, as a huge problem, and not only in the U.S., but they're particularly vulnerable to that with mathematical modeling, but elsewhere as well. Refocusing on transitions, <clears throat> developing effective responses for different volatile environments, a non-cookie-cutter approach, and avoiding unintended consequences. Let's see, this is going to plague me a little bit. Vulnerability and ambiguity in crises. Um, Civilian perceptions of personal security is an under-discussed issue. What do people in the country really think will keep them safe? And there's been a few attempts at understanding that, but mostly it's been an external view of security. It's either been a military version of security, it's been uh, a human rights aid organization's version of security, um, but usually, the, often the people in country are not really asked. The use and legitimacy of force, and there it's about their exposure to formal and informal armed groups. And early on, long before Iraq and Afghanistan, I understood that communities could be, if you want to use the term occupied, or, or would be visited by formal forces during the day. This could be security forces, could be army, could be policing, who would then leave at night and then be visited by informal forces, militias, rebels, terrorists, whoever, at, uh, at night, and civilians would be caught in the middle. So I would be asking, who did you see? What are they saying? But they're caught in the middle. They're, it's their lives at stake. They're the ones in true danger, and they feel unprotected. Different roles of civilians in complex crises. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Hugo Slim wrote the, the Bible on that in Killing Civilians, uh, about depicting the many roles of civilians in these situations. I also found uh, victim and perpetrator were often the same person. It depended on timing. A victim could a victim defining as individuals and communities uh, often were targeted, had the most horrific incidents happen to them, but could later, in the right circumstances, enact exactly the same on the group that originally attacked them. So there was a cycle of revenge that was being perpetuated. Complicit supporters in communities and areas who just would allow groups to come in and never say anything, would see things happening uh, and never say a word. Then the truly tragic innocent bystander overtaken by events. This is really uh, the real sad, sad situation of, of individuals and communities who have no interest in conflict, trying to live their lives, are in the wrong place and time. And then community advocate and activists are, are high visible people, individuals, so on who uh, understand that they could be targeted, who have an understanding of, of the risks. The different roles of formal and informal security forces in complex crises. Unfortunately, as we have seen, both state forces, formal forces, and informal militias, rebel forces, can both uphold law and order and protect civilians, and they can enact agendas and kill civilians, depending on the situation, either or and it can flip, and, uh, and a real understanding of that by external civilian and military groups is essential. Refocusing on transitions is developing and communicating strategies for addressing major shifts within a country, region, caused by condition, events, time. Everyone was woefully unprepared for what happened in North Africa. 
really unprepared for Syria. Um, if there's any way to anticipate, to begin to understand that it's the transitions that are the hard part. Uh, stop, stopping fighting or preventing fighting or securing an area is might very well be the easy part, but assisting an area in transition, a region in transitioning, is difficult. Refocus civilian military interventions on conflict transformation, prevention, mitigation. They said protecting individuals and communities. Also, an understanding of legitimacy of the judicial and political systems that exist in that country or region, um, whether they're perceived to be legitimate or not, is a, makes a huge difference. Host nation ownership and capacity. Is there an infrastructure, institutional infrastructure, or is there not? That requires two very different uh, approaches. Coordinated efforts between civil military and regional engagement. I still hear people say, a conflict, talk about a conflict as though it's local, as though it's isolated. I really don't think there's any such thing as a isolated conflict anymore. Um, a local conflict can become global really quickly with the right motivation and technological tools. And it needs to be looked at that way. If it stays local, it stays local because that's the decision of all parties to keep it that way. Developing effective responses, um, re-examining ways to achieve high impact and low visibility cost-effective operations. Cost-effective is uh, the key phrase now. Budget constraints. The, the era, certainly for the U.S., of trillions of dollars is, is absolutely gone, and I see that certainly in Europe and other places as well. And there are many ways to achieve really good results without spending a lot of money. But it didn't seem, no one seemed to be bothering with that because there was so much money. So it requires a rethink about how to do this effectively and on small, small footprint. Developing a better understanding of distinct responses and roles required by different global crises. A Mali will require a different uh, response than perhaps a crisis in a part of Latin America or the Asia Pacific. It's not that they're so different, it's just the context may be slightly skewed, maybe reformatted, so a certain action in one place may produce an unintended consequence in another. Incorporate constraints caused by local domestic geopolitics. I think of politics as a player in all of this, almost a person, almost an entity, but it needs to be figured in any equation. I don't think there's any way around it. Better understanding of the impact of international criminal syndicates and cartels. If you want to know how uh, people terrorists, insurgents, rebels, arms, nar narcotics, money is flowing. Just watch the flows of human trafficking. Human trafficking is the number one most profitable resource in the criminal world. And on the back of that flows everything else. So if those are mapped, and as many people are doing good research on that, um, you'll see how everything else is flowing globally. Avoiding unintended consequences. This is so difficult when you see civilian organizations and military organizations who are trying to help with the help people have good intentions and then don't understand why their good intentions aren't rewarded with good outcomes. But there needs to be a better understanding of the advantages and pitfalls of waging war by proxy. This is part of the regional conflict dimension. Um, we're seeing that with Iran and the U.S., for instance, now in various areas in the Middle East. You're going to see it with China and the U.S. You'll see that with other countries in Europe and superpowers in different parts of the world who are really, it's really nothing new, the Cold War, that's really what was going on in the Cold War as well. 
Need more communication between civil military individuals and organizations in the virtual realm? There are some attempts to do this, but there really needs to be more communication. Um, and need civilian military cross-training on concepts of provocation and deterrence in volatile environments when it's affected by external, uh, by virtual and external events. And just think of the Quran burning in one country and how many people were killed in another country because of it and within the same day. And you begin to picture uh, sort of the, the issues that are going on and why they need to be addressed. Looking ahead, um, developing international civilian military protocols for rapid, deeply thoughtful responses. This is aspirational, of course, <laughs> to decision timelines affected, accelerated by information technologies. There really needs to be, and I think there's a lot of good people really beginning to think about this in, in various parts around the world. How can everyone communicate with each other? We have amazing technologies at our disposal now, but are we using, are we using them to really communicate? Um, and none of the, I have found personally, and I think others as well, have found that none of the issues have really changed, the core issues. It's dealing with them in a more global way, sort of a macro-micro view simultaneously. Increased international civilian military coordination uh, and communication for effective response. And the U.S. role is rapidly changing, as everyone knows. I think America is slowly coming to terms with this. Um, anyone, any Americans who work outside that country understand that uh, America's power and effect and effective role and influence has diminished greatly. And so while they have great, still have great military capacity, their ability to influence has changed a great deal, and that's directly connected to Iraq and Afghanistan, which I recently heard on a major political show in the U.S., a foreign correspondent returned and said, Af Iraq and Afghanistan are considered catastrophes by the rest of the world. There's a sort of silence, but no argument. Seek ways to better support internal groups seeking peaceful mitigation of conflicts. Again, that goes back to individual perceptions of security. Often those are linked. Uh, conflict mitigation, there are usually groups really trying to peacefully settle problems that are often overlooked and ignored, and then as violence begins to take hold, are, are just sidelined until much later. And then finally, in Iraq in 2012, I had the um, privilege of going back to Erbil in Kurdistan and Baghdad with the U.S. Institute of Peace. I had been working with them on writing their history in Iraq from 2003 to 2011. And it was a good time to go back as an American. The military was gone. The trillions of dollars were gone. They were not coming back. It was the new beginning, the new world, so to speak. And I spoke to a number of Iraqis, and this comment about, uh, we talked about civilian and military organizations in general, as well as USIP's role. And this comment stuck, stuck with me, and I think I want to leave you with this, on the value of civilian organizations versus military. And this was, set, this was uh, told to me by a, a senior politician of a minority background in Iraq. Civilian organizations, if they do things that arms and forces cannot do, prevent the conflict and save a billion dollars, security is not peace, and the target must be peace. Security is everywhere because there's no peace. And so, thank you very much. Leaving you on the note, uh, questions. <laughs>